0: you want me to start now? Sure. Did he want to take level, or he's done that already? He's done that. We okay. Thumbs up. Okay. My name's Christopher Ricks. I've written books mostly about poetry, though I'm not a poet. And I've written about song, because I've written about Bob Dylan. Poets, of course... And all users of words are people who especially appreciate silence. And I want to start now by quoting a very beautiful paragraph by the thinker and social activist Paul Goodman, which is an account of the different kinds of silence that are out there, all equally important and extraordinary. He says, Not speaking and speaking are both human ways of being in the world, and there are kinds and grades of each. There is the dumb silence of slumber or apathy, the sober silence that goes with a solemn animal face, the fertile silence of awareness, pasturing the soul, whence emerge new thoughts, the alive silence of alert perception, ready to say this, this, this. The musical silence that accompanies absorbed activity, the silence of listening to another speak, catching the drift and helping him be clear. The noisy silence of resentment and self-recrimination, loud with sub-vocal speech, but sullen to say it. Baffled silence, the silence of peaceful accord with other persons, or communion with the cosmos.
1: From WBUR in Boston, this is Stylus. Each hour explores an idea in sound, music, and listening. In this hour, we explore silence.
2: An anechoic chamber is a a room that is lined with sound deadening baffles. It's it's literally the quietest place on earth.
3: The silence within which Beethoven lived made his point of reference eternity, not the world around him. Once you taste it, it's
4: attractive.
5: It's like beauty. What John Cage was saying in some ways is that silence is wiser than human beings are. So let's listen to that.
2: John Cage and some of his friends had driven up from New York City to Woodstock. Cage was going to debut a new piece which he called 4 Minutes 33 Seconds or 4.33 for short and he and his friends piled onto the wooden benches in the Maverick Concert Hall and sat along with the audience. You have to imagine the scene there's a a low stage that's about shin high. So David Tudor, who was Cage's longtime friend and pianist, walked from out from the door, stepped up on the stage, sat down at an ordinary black concert piano. He set a stopwatch on top of the piano. He closed the keyboard lid, and he sat quietly for 30 seconds. Doing nothing. Then he raised the lid, then he lowered it again, and he sat quietly for two minutes, 23 seconds, doing nothing. Then he raised the lid, he lowered it again, he sat quietly for one minute, 40 seconds, doing nothing. And then he got up and walked off. So Cage later said that uh, he could hear people in the audience muttering to themselves getting up and walking out of the theater and starting their cars and storming away. My name is Kay Larson. I'm an art critic as well as the author of Where the Heart Beats, a biography about John Cage, silence, Zen, and artists. The reaction to that piece was swift. Many people were furious, Maverick concerts involved a very high level of music person, um, usually from New York City, or they were up in Woodstock for the summer, you know, and uh, they were not in a mood to be amused by Cage's
5: piece. I love the fact that Cage was so often booed during his many performances and all kinds of passionate and enraged responses would come to him from the audience. And I love the fact, most of all, that he loved that because I think what he was doing with his work was really giving us an open space, a field in which to run in. And some of us would sit quietly in that silence, and some of us would express our impatience, and some of us would be so unsettled to have our expectations toppled that we would go and request a refund. Uh, My name is Pico Ayer, and I'm a writer. In some ways, uh, I think he was trying to liberate us from our expectations. And when we go into a, a concert hall, we expect a certain thing. And we almost put ourselves into cruise control or we almost sleepwalk through many of the concerts because uh, we go in expecting music and there it is. And in some ways, the presentation to us of silence is a way of waking us up and first making us listen to all the things that we otherwise sleepwalk past and, and don't attend to that are noises all around us. And secondly, to make us think about what is music and maybe music isn't just one composer's creation of a set of series of notes but it's um, it's a collaborative enterprise in which we're all walking together into the unknown.
2: Cage was born in 1912 in Los Angeles uh, and he had, even as a child he had very big ears. It's funny to look at these photographs. His ears are practically the most sizable thing about his head. Uh, they're not as big as his head but they, they seem like it. So He seemed oriented toward a life in music, you know, from the very beginning. Um, And by the time he was in his early 20s, he was writing music. He had discovered that everything has a voice. There was an important uh, filmmaker, German filmmaker, Oskar Fischinger.
6: He he said something to me that had a very, made a very deep impression. He said, uh, everything in the world has a spirit and it can be released by setting it into vibration, and then when you hear the sound, you know the spirit. And I immediately began um, touching things, scratching them, hitting them, exploring the environment.
2: So he was writing percussion music for until the 1940s. But during this period in the 40s, Cage was troubled by all kinds of thoughts that he was having about himself. He was tormented for reasons that are kind of hard to put together now, you know, what was so, so wrong? But you know that when you get into the spiral of downward thinking, it keeps on going down, down, down. Cage didn't know how to get out of this, but he ran across an Indian spiritual leader called Ramakrishna, who said that silence is God, basically, uh, in the sense that we talk to ourselves all the time, but when that talking stops, what you hear is all of creation. So out of this period comes two incredibly important pieces. The, f- the first one is a piece that's nothing but silence. Uh, we've, we've heard about that one already. And the second one was this piece called Imaginary Landscape Number no. 4. And uh, when it, it was first performed in 1951, Cage specified by chance what numbers on the radio dial each of 12 radios was going to be tuned to. And when it was first performed, it was uh, performed m- about midnight, so very few radio stations were still on the air. <laughs> so, so you get these soundscapes that would drift in and out, and then there was silence again, and then a the little static, and then you know, something else. The word Korea drifted in and out and so on.
7: Korea.
2: Cage was searching for this place of nothing and perfect silence. And uh, he discovered that Harvard University had an anechoic chamber. A room that is lined with sound deadening baffles is—it's uh, it's literally the quietest place on earth.
8: For you, so I have this as a digital wave file. That's excellent. For you, so can you we can... listen to that again. Sure, sure. I'll, I'll crank it up if you don't mind. Yeah. Wow. And so you can clearly see. Here. I'm Dr. Bob Selmer, a director of the acoustics program here at the University of Hartford's College of Engineering, Technology, and Architecture. So by contrast, I then blew up another balloon the exact the same amount, and went into the anechoic chamber, and in the anechoic chamber, that's what I <laughs> recorded. <laughs> okay,
9: what we're looking at right now
8: <laughs> is essentially just the impulse of disturbing the air, you know, molecules in the vicinity of the balloon. Once that oh, that uh, surface tears, you know, when I popped it with a pin then this is all that the impulse actually is. And all of the rest of what you saw on the other one was from the room. So <laughs> that's what it sounds like in, in the anechoic chamber. Wow. That, that's all there is, simply by walking around. I think if you follow me, you'll clearly be able to hear the difference. We're right in the classroom right now. And now we're going to go inside the anechoic chamber. no cutaway. We're in real time. We are inside the anechoic chamber where the walls, ceiling, and floor are covered by these uh, very absorptive surfaces. And uh, instead of just facing the microphone, if I start to turn and make a full circle as I'm talking to you, you can hear the difference in my voice as I come back and make a full 360 degree pirouette
9: the first time I came to uh, tour the school. Uh, we did a tour of the acoustics lab and uh, then I took my first steps inside of me head a coke chamber and I just remember the, uh, you know, the feeling of just kind of having all of that extra information that I'm used to just suddenly taken away. You can't accurately describe that to another person without them having to experience it themselves. I'm Jeff Holfish. I am a uh, senior acoustical engineering and music student. The things that make the anechoic chamber special, uh, well, it's a multitude of different things, but how we get it so quiet, we start with simply just really thick walls, uh, just kind of like our first defense against sound. And then also our only door is airtight. Uh, Also, on the inside, as you can see here, we have a bunch of different wedges. uh, Highly insulated fiberglass, 99.99% absorptive. Can you get much quieter than this? Uh, Well, you could go out into the vacuum of space where there's literally no atmosphere. Uh, You know, the reason that we can perceive sound is it's the vibration of air molecules. So the only way that you could actually get quieter is if you were in a literal vacuum.
10: Hmm. Which... We can't be in. Right, exactly.
2: (laughs) We'd have other problems. We'd have
9: some some serious issues. Exactly.
11: Yeah.
2: So Cage thought that if he went into the anechoic chamber, shut the door, and laid down, he thought he'd find what he was looking for. But what happened was profound because he got into this quietest place, and he heard two things. He heard the pulse of the neurons in his brain, the, the whine, which you can hear yourself when you turn your mind to it, and he also heard the, the, the beating of the blood in his veins. And so he realized that in the quietest place, in the place of nothing and silence, all of being arises. Everything arises. His own life is part of this network of being. And um, he didn't have to worry about it because it was already there. So all he had to do was to turn his mind toward it. So Cage often talks throughout all his writings and speeches, he talks about this turning around. What he means is that we're all caught up in our heads, and if we just turn around and see what's always been there, we'll see that we are completely interconnected with all of being. And that's what he saw in the anechoic chamber. And immediately after that, he went to Woodstock and created 433.
12: My name is Steven Cooper. I'm an associate professor in psychology at Harvard Medical School and a frequent contributor to the Off the Couch series at Coolidge Corner Theater, where we talk about film.
5: Can I go to my room and get my fire engine? Not right now. Daddy's asleep.
11: I won't make any noise. all right, but really don't make a sound.
3: All right, so we're talking about silence, and my name is Andrea Shea, and I'm a reporter at WBUR, and we're talking about specifically the power of silence in film, and one of the first examples that came to mind for us was Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, so I, I guess we could remind people who haven't seen the film of the plot.
12: Yeah, the plot is is that a father who uh, is a writer and, and uh, trying to kind of get his career going...
6: Uh got an appointment with Mr. Allman.
4: My name's Jack
12: Torrance. Uh, ...decides to go to a resort, I think in Colorado, somewhere in the Rockies, in a pretty isolated place, and uh, takes his family, his wife and small son, for a winter to kind of be a caretaker at the hotel, and um, they're going to spend three months there. And, you know, throughout the film, it's hard to know which is more scary and haunting, the history of the hotel in which murder has occurred, or the imagination of the father who is kind of, you see, slowly losing his mind entirely. Silence is continually unsettling and feels like it fits with the haunting quality that Kubrick is getting at in the film. Talking and dialogue in some ways are comforting. There are, they mediate what's inside us with what goes on socially, and so we're reassured by dialogue, we're steered by the director to know what the characters are thinking and feeling. That's how we find out about it through dialogue. So when there's silence, it's kind of subversive and disarming and it's uncertain and ambiguous. And we're left in certain ways to just know about the, the, the characters through our own imagination.
3: Right, and there's a lot of silence. There's silence between the husband and wife. There's silence between the father and son.
12: And there's also, throughout the dialogue in the film, there's a funny kind of Um, There are long pauses, and so it always feels like speech is not really that direct form when we know what someone's saying immediately. It feels like things are off. I love you,
10: Danny. I love
12: you more than anything else whole world, I'll never do anything to hurt you, never. So there's always a sense, even in the relatively sparse dialogue in the film, that dialogue and words aren't quite matched to what's going on in our interiors. And that interior life, and I think that's what the silence really gets at, is that the idea, he's really showing us all the time, that that our interior lives, interiority is scary and unpredictable. (sighs)
6: Here's Johnny.
12: <laughs> Recently, I came across something that Alfred Hitchcock said, which is he he began his career as a silent film director. And he said that in creating cinematic experience, a director should only use dialogue when it's absolutely necessary and to avoid it at all costs. Well,
5: Mr. Anthony, you seem very interested in the subject of murder. Well, I have the best way
0: and the best tools. Simple. Silent and quick, the silent part being the most important.
12: There's no question that talking and verbalization is is a much more prominent part of our culture. We expect words and to be talked to. We expect to hear things from other people, and we know that they expect us to talk. Silence in this culture, in Western culture in general, makes us a little bit more anxious as sort of a baseline. We're, We're less familiar with it.
3: Oh,
1: You're listening to Stylus, a show about sound, music, and listening. This episode is about silence.
6: Wear shoes on the stage. And because of the tradition of that stage, you were not supposed to even have bare feet. They gave me some tennis shoes. i like to talk about that. Okay. Yes. Yes. yes, Let's find a spot. My name is Cecil McBee, and, uh, and we are at the New England Conservatory. And we're about to talk about silence. I should say it's rather appropriate to engage that uh, subject matter because it's very quiet here. So we might find things of interest to talk about. It's impossible to find creati- creativity in any sort for any reason, whatever, by simply playing one note. Bang, 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 bang. La, la, la. You can't play that forever. It'll drive you crazy. I mean to say that that note must be responded to by another tone. Da, da, da. given the amount of space that takes place or that lapses or that's engaged between the notes, is the silence. Now, uh, first, I needed to play that note, which means I have emerged or I'm emerging from a point of uh, nothing inspired by the silence to play that note. You know, in speaking about this, which I've never done, it's it's like you you, you hey, the light shines in the dark, right? Right? So uh, all this is happening inside of silence. Hmm. You know, this motion, this energy. So I think uh, silence is is the 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 the, the amazing abundance of every possibility that we can understand and so forth our human existence here.
10: The way silence is often spoken about in Buddhism is as uh, one of the dualities to sound or noise. My name is Jeffrey Shugan Arnold, and we're at the Zen Center in New York City in Brooklyn, New York. And so, as important as that is, there is then a going beyond that, where there's the, even the loss of sense of hearing or of not hearing. We were getting ready for a treat and a, a woman had come in and only been there for a few hours. And when she heard that we were going to have periods of silence, she left. Just the, the thought of being in a period of silence was frightening to her. But learning how to do meditation, sitting with a community, being supported by other people, um, is enormously important and can help a person to feel more settled. And safe that this is. A, I mean, this is a very, very old tradition. Meditation is a part of many different religious traditions. It's very ancient. There's something inside of us that knows this, you know, that understands this. I, I really think that's true on a very, very deep level, and has always understood this and valued it, which is important. We don't value it anymore. We really place no value at all on silence. And in fact, it's. Um, we're, we're, it's being stolen from us. Uh, now in elevators, pumping gas at a gas station. Um, you know, everywhere you go. And what happens is, is our, that our silence gets invaded. Right? And it becomes, we, we become estranged from that part of ourselves and from that part of the world. And that's not a good thing.
4: the abbot of St. Joseph's Abbey, where we are presently meeting. Trappist is the common name, the formal name is Cistercian, Cistercians of the Strict Observance. and That alone tells you something, because there, was, there is another observance <laughs> uh, and that was throughout history, there were different um, uh, accents my name is Father Damien Carr. Today we're talking about silence. Um, shall we keep going? Sure. Okay. Mm. So this this space, this room here, was called the auditorium, and by its very name, it's one of the few places where speaking was allowed. You would come out usually after church service and line up here, and you would get your assignment, go here, go there, whatever. Um, That's no longer the case, but it is one of the areas where where speaking is is sort of permitted. We try as far as possible to maintain an atmosphere of silence in the cloisters, the library, the chapter room, the church, as I say as far as possible. It's One of the challenges is the place was built for the old Trappist silent was very very strict. We had a sign language that went with it. And, um, so the place was built for a, a, when everybody did everything together at the same time, in the same way, in silence. And that has evolved. The four, if you want to say the process, would be lexio, Meditatio, Oratio, Contemplatio, which is reading, meditating, praying, Contemplation. Others may use a form of centering prayer, which is, I think, I think the method of centering prayer um, is you choose a, a word or a sacred. So for the time of prayer, you're going into it. The word becomes just your gentle focus. When you find your mind on something else, you come back to the word. The idea being, um, things can quiet down, but things can also surface. But during this time. Mm, your uh, your intention isn't to reflect on what's coming up; it's sort of to just come back to the word. It's supposed to be very simple and gradual, and dispose yourself to um, to silence. Because in my limited experience, but uh, I think once you taste it, it's attractive. It's like beauty, you know, beauty is more than just something visual, it's, it's something and we're, we always respond to beauty, we're attracted to it spontaneously, we don't have to be, and I think silence in that respect um, is a lot like beauty.
3: I'm James Johnson. I'm a professor of history at Boston University. I think we tend to think about silence as an absence, as a gap, as an empty space. But there are also those silences that are an essential part of what comes before them and what comes after them. And in some cases, they're such an essential part that we start to think about a silence as a presence. And there's an extraordinarily powerful use of silence as a presence especially in late Beethoven. Beethoven came to Vienna when he was 23 years old. He was born in Bonn. He was extraordinarily gifted. He was proud. He was unpolished. Beethoven was a lover of humankind, but he had difficulty with his friends and his family. Beethoven was the first composer who declared his intention to be original. He wanted to express his own pain and his own joy and his own convictions in the music. And in his early 30s, Beethoven began to live in increasing silence. First signs of deafness from the early years of his 30s, it got worse and worse, it increased his isolation, he was misanthropic by nature it deepened that isolation and the silence within which beethoven lived made his point of reference eternity not the world around him silence is at the apex of one of the great masterpieces of late beethoven it's 33 Variations on a Theme by Anton Diabelli. It's a good story. Anton Diabelli was a music publisher. He was an amateur composer. He had a brilliant idea to make money. Namely, he composed a little waltz tune. His entrepreneurial idea was to send it to the 50 greatest composers of his own day. In 1824, Diabelli published these variations with 50 composers, but not with Beethoven because Between 1819 and 1823, Beethoven finished his own set of 33 variations. The opening waltz by Diabelli is absolutely ordinary. It's common, it's earthy, it's maybe German sounding, it's music of every day. Altogether ordinary that Beethoven changes into something altogether extraordinary. Using this waltz tune, Beethoven wrote variations that span virtually every emotional range. He explored with this as the foundation, every possible musical nuance, every possible musical mood. Its sheer variety and inventiveness is breathtaking. The first variation is a procession. It is stately, it is dignified, it announces that we are entering the journey. The third variation is the first glimpse of possibilities of an interior world. reflective, it carries a sense of moderation, a sense of considerateness. The journey continues. Partway through the journey, we come to variation 16, driving, insistent, rambunctious. A hint of boogie woogie, a glint of wit, but also with contrasts that show the depth, even in this insistent theme. It's not silly or superficial. And as we approach the apex of the journey, the variations get longer, the variations get more involved, perhaps more reflective. We feel that we're not any longer on the level of the ordinary or the common. Variation 31 announces a world of perfect peace. It's a sense of stasis. It's a sense of calm. It's a variation that looks forward to Chopin. comes Variation 32, the next to last variation. Variation 32 is a fugue. It begins with clarion calls of the theme, it becomes more complex, it becomes raging at times, it becomes delicate at times, it becomes, again, tumultuous. And it comes to a climax after successive entries of one after another, layer upon layer, larger and larger in scope, we grasp the immensity of musical space in this fugue. Then there's a tremendous chord, and then arpeggios that go up and down the keyboard. A shift in the bass, hesitation, And then silence as he completed this work Beethoven wrote in a letter the world is a king and desires flattery in return for favor but true art is obstinate and will not yield to the fashions of flattery they say art is long life is short only life is long and art is is short. May its breath lift us to the gods. That is an instant's grace. The silence that follows variation 32 is part of that grace. It precedes what follows and connects the fugue to the original theme, but now that theme is otherworldly. It's more a meditation than it is a dance. What does it convey? The certainty of arrival, transcendence, perhaps eternity.
1: Listening to Stylus. This episode is about silence.
13: The summer of 2011. My goal was to get back in shape and actively pursue my acting career when I met a boy. That's not how all these stories start. (laughs) He got sick. Nothing big, nothing exciting, just. A normal sore throat and a cough. I don't have a very great immune system, so I ended up pretty sick. My doctor recommended that once I get a little better, I have my tonsils removed. So I did. And it was at this time when I started to notice that I couldn't really hear.
3: My name is Joe McDonough, and I'm Amanda's father. Amanda was in many many musicals as she was growing up in high school and so she always tended to get one of the main parts in the musicals I knew that she wore hearing aids and that she had some hearing impairment but when your daughter's playing leads in musicals how serious could it be right
9: I'm Julie McDonough and I am Amanda's mother I picked up the phone, I dialed her, as I always do, and she says, Mom, I know you're there on the phone, but I can't hear you. Will you text me?
13: Well, there was a falling out with the um, boyfriend at the time. (laughs) He got sick. I took care of him. And then while I was sick, he went on a short vacation to San Francisco with a couple of his friends. And... The day after he came back, he comes up to me and tells me that he cheated on me in San Francisco. So one of the first um, lip-reading sentences I did was, I cheated on you in San Francisco.
9: (laughs) Becoming deaf was a journey all of us took with her, but a lot of us declined to acknowledge that made it harder, I think, sometimes for Amanda.
3: She lost her ability to hear Julie first, but she could still hear the lower end of my voice. She lost her ability to hear my wife. Of course, she says I had lost that ability too, but...
13: (laughs) (laughs) When I became deaf, it was almost a relief. I spent my entire life being afraid of losing any more of my hearing. I spent my entire life praying every night, please don't let it get any worse, please don't let it get any worse. And when it was finally all gone, I was just kind of like... <sighs> Alright. Now what do I do? Hi, it's Jane. You're one o'clock taking is in. Thanks,
11: Sally. You're welcome, bye-bye. Okay. I'm Jane Gay, a clinical audiologist in the adult cochlear implant program at House Clinic in Los Angeles. She came in and um, she was very, very clear that she hadn't made up her mind if this was the direction she wanted to go in. She, ju- she said, I, you know, I, I'm just trying to accept that this has happened to me. Here we go. 10 to 20, 25% of implant users are able to enjoy music. You recognize that, that's from the Nutcracker, but unfortunately, not everybody. So now I'm gonna play, this is just bare bones cochlear implant.
9: I could see it at first when she came out of that appointment and she hadn't made a final decision and she was like crying one second and happy the other like, I'm gonna
13: get it and I slammed my hands down on the table and i was like I'm not gonna think about it anymore I'm not gonna overthink it I'm getting it and we're not talking about it anymore and she's like okay <laughs> So tomorrow I am scheduled for my cochlear implant surgery at nine AM I have my last meeting with my surgeon, Dr. House.
7: How are you
3: all?
13: We were joking the other day at lunch about how like you can watch ESPN before a game and find out if a player's knee is bothering them. You can try and tell whether or not they're gonna play as well that day. I wish they did that with surgeons.
7: The surgery itself will take about an hour to an hour and a half. When you come out of surgery, you'll go to a re- go to a recovery room for about an hour. In about three weeks, she'll receive her external processor. Thanks
13: so much, Doctor Howard.
7: You're very welcome, and I will see you all this afternoon.
0: Hi, hi. Nice to meet you. I'm Doctor Lee. Anesthesiologist. Nice to meet you. I'm the one main guy put to sleep and wake you up. <laughs> You're life in my hand
13: now. <laughs> it smells like peppermint.
5: Okay, good night. Bye.
7: The sound will come in just like it normally does. It hits the eardrum and goes through the little ear bones. It vibrates the fluid but there's no little sensors there to sense the vibration. So what happens is the sound doesn't get transmitted onto the brain. So what's internal is the receiver and the electrodes. The external processor is where the computer is that takes sound, processes the sound, converts the sound to an electrical message causes the electrodes, then, to stimulate the hearing nerve itself.
13: Coming out of the anesthesia was not fun. A couple of days, I had, I had a little bit of difficulty with the recovery. Um, I was really dizzy. There was pain. It's two days before the outer pieces of my cochlear implant gets put on. And I am really nervous. (laughs) I've started becoming frustrated Been trying to communicate with my own family members, and I started kind of isolating myself a little more than usual. Yesterday, my uncle came over, my aunt was here, my grandmother, my parents, my brother, everyone's sitting around our kitchen table. They're talking and having a grand old time, and I couldn't keep up. I couldn't figure out who was talking when. I got so frustrated, my eyes started to water, and I just walked out of the house and went for a walk because I couldn't. Because in my life, I'm alone in this. And I know they try, I really, really do, but they'll never understand what it's like to be me to live in a world that is completely silent all the time and where you feel utterly and completely alone.
11: Okay, Okay. I'm gonna turn this on. It's gonna give you a little bit of a jolt in the beginning. A jolt? You'll see. It'll take just a couple seconds before it kicks on.
13: I feel this weird kind of like vibration.
11: Mm-hmm. Amanda, can you hear my voice? Wow, that sounds do, you, do you hear my <laughs> voice? Can it does it sound weird? It, it
13: sounds like
11: <laughs> a robot? <laughs> a robot, that's okay. Are my do you hear words? not really Uh, is my voice far far away or is it right here in the room oh my god it just changed (laughs) okay um is my voice right here in the room or is it far far away
13: it's a little far away but i can hear words now
11: okay it's going to get better and better I just made my voice come in a little bit closer. Is that a little better?
13: Kato. Yeah,
11: okay. And you're understanding me? Yes. That's fantastic. <laughs> That's fantastic. Here. Sorry. That's okay. Everybody cries. Even I do. <laughs> I mean, this is amazing, isn't it?
13: Wow. <laughs> I haven't heard somebody say a word in <laughs> school. <so. laughs> I know. Come here. Oh.
3: <laughs> oh.
13: oh. Got it. Yes, I can hear the phone ring now, which is exciting. I got bubble wrap the other day. I was um putting my diploma in um. It's frame, and the frame frame's covered in bubble wrap. So I take the bubble wrap off, and I accidentally popped one. It was like, oh my gosh, what is that? So then of course I have to lay down on the floor and like start pounding them out. My mom thought I was a little crazy. She's sitting here watching TV, and I'm sitting on the floor of the living room, 22 years old, popping bubble wrap like a five-year-old child with my eyes wide and all excited. So that's what it's been like. Every day I get a new sound, and then I have to learn it and memorize it. And understand it. Music is actually starting to sound a little better. When it comes to like music I know like from the past, music I'm really familiar with, it starts sounding a little more like music. I'm deaf. I'm always going to be deaf. The second this thing comes off, the second it runs out of batteries, I hear nothing, nothing at all, complete silence and sometimes I really like that. Sounds can be overwhelming Like, people talking can get annoying. Sometimes I just like to take it off just because... You know what? I could use some silence for a few minutes.
5: This is a piece I wrote just over 20 years ago as a back page essay for Time magazine. And my editors were wise enough to run it the week of Bill Clinton's first inauguration when I think they figured there was going to be a lot of noise around the country. And later I reproduced it in a book of mine called Tropical Classical. I'll just read it then. Every one of us knows the sensation of going up on retreat a high place and feeling ourselves so lifted up that we can hardly recognize the circumstances of our usual lives or all the things that make us fret in such a place in such a state we start to recite the standard litany that silence is sunshine where company is clouds that silence is rapture where company is doubt that silence is golden where company is brass but silence is not so easily won. All profound things and emotions of things are preceded and attended by silence, wrote Herman Melville, one of the loftiest and most eloquent of souls. Working himself up to an ever more thunderous cry of affirmation, he went on, Silence is the general consecration of the universe. Silence is the invisible laying on of the divine pontiff's hands upon the world. Silence is the only voice of our God. For Melville, though, silence finally meant darkness and hopelessness and self-annihilation. Devastated by the silence that greeted his heartfelt novels, he retired into a public silence from which he did not emerge for more than 30 years. Then, just before his death, he came forth with his final utterance, the luminous tale of Billy Budd, and showed that silence is only as worthy as what we can bring back from it. We have to earn silence then to work for it, to make it not an absence, but a presence, not emptiness, but repletion. Silence is something more than just a pause. It is that enchanted place where space is cleared and time is stayed and the horizon itself expands. In silence, we often say, we can hear ourselves think. What is truer to say is that in silence we can hear ourselves not think and so sink below ourselves into a place far deeper than mere thought allows. In silence, we might better say we can hear someone else think or simply breathe. For silence is responsiveness and in silence we can listen to something behind the clamour of the world. As soon as you are alone, wrote Thomas Merton, who was, as a trappist, a connoisseur, a caretaker of silences, you are with God. It's no coincidence that places of worship are places of silence. If idleness is the devil's playground, silence may be the angels. And it's only right that Quakers all but worship silence, for it is the place where everyone finds his God, however he may express it. Silence is an ecumenical state beyond the doctrines and divisions created by the mind. And if everyone has a spiritual story to tell of his life, everyone has a spiritual silence to preserve. So it is, we might almost say that silence is the tribute that we pay to holiness. We slip off words when we enter a sacred space just as we slip off shoes. A moment of silence is the highest honor we can pay someone. It is the point at which the mind stops and something else takes over. Words run out when feelings rush in. A vow of silence is for holy men the highest devotional act. We hold our breath, we hold our words, we suspend our chattering selves and let ourselves fall silent and fall into the highest place of all. There is, of course, a place for noise as there is for daily lives. There's a place for roaring, for the shouting exaltation of a baseball game, for hymns and cries of pleasure. The great charm of noise, however, is when it ceases. In silence, suddenly, it seems as if all the windows of the world are thrown open and everything is as clear as on a morning after rain. In Tibet, where the silence has a tragic cause, it's still quickened by the fluttering of prayer flags, the tolling of temple bells, the roar of wind across the plains the memory of chant. Silence then could be said to be the ultimate province of trust. It is the place where we trust ourselves to be alone, where we trust others to understand the things we do not say, where we trust a higher harmony to assert itself. We all know how treacherous are words and how often we use them to paper over embarrassment or emptiness or fear of the larger spaces that silence brings. We babble with strangers, with intimates we can be silent. We make conversation when we're at a loss. We unmake it when we are alone or with those so close to us that we can afford to be alone with them. In love, we are speechless. In awe, we say, words fail us.
1: This hour about silence was produced by Zach Ezor, Connor Gillies, and Andrea Shea. It includes Brian Calvert's piece, The Rest is Silence, originally made for KCRW's independent producer project. Thanks to Sean Cole, Catherine Gorman, and Erica Lance for helping to edit this hour. And thanks to our engineers, Mike Garth, Marquise Neal, James Trout, and Paul Veitkus. Our intro music is by Ryoji Ikeda, and we're going out on music by Laurel Halo. Our executive producers are Connor Gillies and Zach Ezor. Our supervising editor is Lisa Tobin. I'm Kainat Khan. You can find us and hear more on iTunes and on Twitter at Stylus Radio. And check out our website, wbur.org stylus.
9: Stylus is supported by WBUR in Boston and distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange.